think there's another Republican debate this week. Oh, that's, that's fun. Yeah. Are you watching? Uh, no, no, <laughs> I'm not going to be watching. You know, I haven't watched a Republican debate in years. Um, I think the last one Since I... Since 2016. <laughs> yeah, the last one I watched was in 2016. I went to a, a mutual friend's house and... Uh, we, oh, I remember this story. Yeah, well, listen, I'm not going to I'm not gonna tell the whole story because it would involve like bad-mouthing somebody and I, I don't want to do that. We would never do that on this show. But yeah, the, my overwhelming memory of it, like, you know, Trump, Chris Christie, Jeb, all those people, it just felt like a wrestling match. Like it felt like there were bullhorns and like cowbells and pile drivers. I know these things weren't actually there, but it just had that like general vibe. And like the crowd was just like hooting and braying like <laughs> freaks, you know, responding to every piece of red meat. I mean, they genuinely were a lot of fun. And uh, yeah. I mean, I have no love for like Canada's debates, but I just remember being over overwhelmed by like how the affect was different well i don't know the canada's debates are so kind of uh meek and like closer to being actual debates compared to the u.s ones uh and yeah i mean the republican ones are just like these carnival-esque freak shows uh although having said that you know watching the two that have happened uh, so far in this campaign season i mean it is a reminder like when trump is not there it's a reminder of just what a presence he is and how uh yeah like literally everything he does when he's on a stage like that is more entertaining than what like all the other people do like it, it really hits home when you watch Ron DeSantis try to do anything in these debates like how silly it was that anybody like any GOP elite uh, person or pundit thought that this guy was going to replace Donald Trump because all he does is just like stake out the most insane hideous right wing position he'll have lines about like well and if people cross the border illegally we're going to shoot them until they're stone cold dead and like all this kind of stuff and then he does his like awkward smile which like when the camera lingers on him you can see it freeze and fall from his face in real time just like uh, just a man in pain you know uh i've been writing about uh the republican debates i don't know i i think it's kind of fun it's like the easiest sort of article there is to write because there's never anything of substance to say so you just get to have fun you get to write a meta article you know you know actually in some of my recent jacobin writing i've been going into uh you know i've been writing about republican presidential campaigns this was sort of a minor beat that i picked up in 2020 like write about sort of obscure campaigns like actually take a look at the campaigns no one else is paying attention to and i had some fun with this guy doug burgum recently do you even know who doug burgum is uh no i'm, I'm kind of checked out from politics these days well he he, he looks like this uh he's the governor of north dakota uh, he was in one debate. Looks like um, a villain in kind of an early Steven Seagal movie. Like he looks like the <laughs> senator. Doug Burgum has been in exactly one debate uh, and the way he was able to meet the threshold of, you know, individual donors or whatever, like this guy's super PAC by the end of June had raised $11 million and that was for about like two dozen people. So just like his rich friends from, uh, from business, this guy's like governor of North Dakota and he used to own a software company or something. But so like in order to actually qualify these for these debates, even within the Republican Party, you have to meet some kind of threshold for, you know, this many raw donors gave some amount to show some kind of grassroots support. And what this guy did, I don't really understand how this isn't illegal, but if you gave him a dollar, he would send you a $20 gift card. <laughs> so, I mean, this is what I really like about this guy. This is why it was actually really fun to write about him is, you know, sometimes you get a guy like this, you know, he's you know personally wealthy. He's like worth a billion dollars or something. And, you know, you kind of, you kind of expect and hope that some guy 
like that is like he's going to have some eccentric thing, which is the reason he's running his chaotic campaign. Because like, let's face it, right? The governor of North Dakota, who no one's ever heard of, like even in a normal, like if this were 2012, this guy would have no chance of winning the Republican presidential nomination. So you hope, right? This guy must have something, right? He must be crusading against seatbelt laws or he must want like America to return to the gold standard like so much that he's willing to spend like tens of millions of dollars of his own money in order to make that happen. That is not the case with Doug Burgum. Uh, if you go to his website, I, you know, I, I wanted to go to see what his platform was. And I don't think he has more than like 300 words for each of the three things. He has like energy, economy, and I think like foreign policy or security. Uh, so I went to economy and I'm going to read you the entirety of what it says under economy on his. Uh, th this is his economy platform. The economy needs to be the absolute top priority. It's the main thing. A strong American economy propels everything else and is the key to unlocking the best of America. That's the first paragraph of three. Here's number two. Amen, brother. Innovation, by the way. Yeah, innovation has always been America's best weapon. Innovation over regulation is how you solve the challenges we face today. Regulation looks backward and innovation looks towards the future. It's provided an opportunity for a better life to Americans willing to reach it. All that is now at risk. Doug will get inflation under control, cut taxes, lower gas prices, reduce the cost of living, and help people realize their fullest potential. You go down to energy and there's some line about uh, Doug understands the future is going to be one at the intersection of innovation and energy. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what that means, but uh, I don't know. I find politicians like this extremely fascinating because I love the idea that you would waste tens of millions of dollars of your own money and like you're not even running on like something fun and crazy. And then when you go to like the guy's website, it's just the most like just run of the mill chamber of commerce boilerplate. Like they're real. They're seriously was the governor of North Dakota couldn't find some young conservative from Yale or Stanford to write like a more interesting pitch than that. I mean, it's it's extraordinary. Nothing interesting to say about Doug Burgum uh, beyond that. I just think it's very yeah, funny. It, it's sad, though. You want like a fun eccentric and not just kind of a run of the mill careerist, you know, a guy trying to get the Fox News slot, you know, a guy trying to get a minor post in an administration. Right. You know? And you are describing Vivek Ramaswamy, who at these debates is just off the wall saying crazy shit. He's not, you know, he's not entertaining in the way Donald Trump is, but he's at least trying to be. Incidentally, what do you think Doug Burgum is polling at? If you had to venture a guess. Um, 0.5. Well, I, that's a little underselling it. I think his average in the polls is currently 0.7. But in, okay, a lot of, not bad. in a lot of polls, he's at zero. So he's <laughs> he's waging a fierce uphill battle against the margin of error. He's apparently planning to spend like tens of millions of dollars uh, more of his own money. So we're going to see the Bergmentum soon. Uh, I have the faith. The other person I've been following, incidentally, is, uh, is Chris Christie. More like Donald Duck, I say. <laughs> right, right. So uh, when Chris Christie's said that at the uh, second Republican debate a few weeks ago, I knew no one's going to remember this in like three days, except there's going to be a certain kind of liberal pundit that is not going to let us forget it because this is like the battle of Trafalgar for them. Like there has never been a victory over Donald Trump that goes as hard as Chris Christie doing a canned line about, uh, you know, Donald, I know if you're listening and uh, next time I talk to you, you know, we're, we, we're going to call you Donald freaking and duck. That, and that little girl was me. <laughs> right, right. Right, exactly.
But even I was surprised doing research on, okay, like what are the things liberal pundits have been saying about uh, Chris Christie? As soon as he launched his campaign, it turned out like well, well before, uh, you know, the epoch defining Donald Duck uh, haymaker in the debate, um, you know, up there with Muhammad Ali's first round drubbing of Sonny Liston. Uh, ever since Christie launched his campaign, I mean, God, Frank Bruni in the New York Times wrote an article, Chris Christie is doing something very, very important. Uh, he talked about how Christie's salvos against Trump couldn't be more emotionally gratifying, and he praised him for telling the unvarnished truth. Um, columnist in the LA Times called Christie's description of Donald Trump poetic. Uh, and, oh, God. Uh, she, he or she was referring to uh, a description where Christie called Donald Trump a lonely, self-consumed, self-serving mirror hog. Which, Th this, th this really makes me feel like I'm going insane. Right. The, these, like, these pundits just shadow box in their own fake reality that they've built well, for themselves. Like, no, I mean, you're absolutely right because like, imagine, I'm going to read more by the way, we're not done, but it's like, imagine living through the past seven years and thinking that any of this matters. That any of this yeah, Trump, makes Trump any difference. At what seventy percent? He's got a lead of voters. like I think on an average it's like a 45, 46 point lead. Like imagine thinking that any of this matters. And I mean, I guess there's an insight into the way certain pundits think right there, where it's just they live in you know, as you alluded to, just a kind of cloistered reality where something that appeals to them uh, is meaningful by definition. So that's kind of you know what exists in their mind palace at a given time defines kind of the outer limits of uh, you know what. Matters matters or what's important. Jim Newell of Slate writes, what Christie does bring to the race that no other non-Trump candidate has brought in a while is some life, a touch of energy, a little gosh darn fun around here. Also, I found uh, Chris Christie went on James Carville's podcast, which I'm just saying that I know you're a regular listener, but in case people uh, listening at home don't know that James Carville has a podcast. And uh, I'm more of a Dershcast guy, <laughs> right, you know, right. the Alan Dershowitz one. Well, gone to my head if I had to listen to one podcast, I don't know which one I'm choosing. Define genocide is the title of every episode now. So uh, Christy went on James Carville's podcast where he was described as a welcome addition to the race. Chris Matthews apparently came out of hiding or, you know, I don't know, apparently he's still going on TV. He was described as the liberal pinup boy of the moment. Now, there was another column by Michelle Goldberg in the New York Times where she said uh, that she found Christie's attacks on Trump amusing. But to Michelle Goldberg's credit, uh, she added that her own, quote, enjoyment of his newfound resistance shtick doesn't bode well for Christie because the people he needs to win over are not liberal New York Times columnists, but voters who hate New York Times liberal columnists. And you know what? Credit to Michelle Goldberg. She's absolutely right. But if you look at polls of voters in general, that is, you actually find that Christie has, uh, he has experienced a really big surge in popularity. Uh, among Democrats. He is, I think, only outstripped in popularity among Democrats by like uh, Liz Cheney when it comes to Republican politicians. That's just, just so obscene to it's me. It's crazy. That's, I mean, uh, I mean, there's that, uh, there was that poll a few years ago, and I'm sure, well, I'm, I expect this is uh, still holds true today, but that found that George W. Bush is actually more popular among Democrats than he is among Republicans. The Trump thing is insane because for the last like six or seven years, the reflex in a certain kind of liberal is 
just to like anti-Trump is the only is the only right. like plane on right. which anything is viewed. You if know, Trump you, says something is bad. That means it's good. So Dick Cheney is good now. Very, like, George Bush is good. Very early on in the Gaza situation, like Trump had like made some comment about like eh, Israel really doesn't know what they're doing there now. Looks like looks like their security really faltered. And Biden said something like America will always stand with Israel. <laughs> and then you just see like a certain kind of liberal, not Rob Reiner, but like Rob Reiner adjacent <laughs> people being like, yes, yes. Unlike some presidents who don't stand with Netanyahu. That, that's right. We, we all know that the, the big thing that Donald Trump definitely didn't do was be extremely pro-Israel yeah. and supportive of Benjamin <laughs> Netanyahu's yeah. government. Yeah. It just stops at that, like, first step. Right. You know? it's, I mean, so stupid. But just to, to come back to Chris Christie for a sec, I mean, I actually think that Chris Christie being popular with liberal pundits, if anything, just shows, like, the final victory of Trumpism. Because, like, what is Trumpism? And especially if we're talking about debates, which are the thing that really launched the Trump campaign uh, circa 2015, 2016. Trumpism is, like, fundamentally about TV as a medium. Like, that is the orifice of American culture that produced Donald Trump and everything he represents and the entire basis of his appeal. And so I love the idea of like well-heeled New York Times columnists or something sitting around watching Chris Christie do these like stupid canned lines that are supposed to play well on cable news and thinking that they're getting one over on Donald Trump, especially when what Christie's doing is having no actual impact on Donald Trump at all. Like if Trumpism is about anything, it's just about like pure spectacle, corroding every single norm and standard of ethics or morality, objective truth, whatever. And so it's like, I don't know, these people cheering on Chris Christie, regardless of the fact that his campaign isn't like doing anything. And he's literally just there because like he kissed Donald Trump's ass and didn't get a cabinet post. It's like, you may be anti-Trump, but you're just living in the world that he's helped create, you know? No one up here is going to call you Donald Trump anymore. We're going to call you Donald Duck. Well, we do have a great, uh, not movie, but TV show to talk about oh on this God, episode. And, and, salivating and we, will, we will get to it, but we have a little dinosaur hour of our own that we're having here and I, I just like to bring one more topic to the table and this is going to be the last time I talk about this particular topic for a long time because there needs to be a moratorium on this topic it's it's past its peak of relevance but I do think that we can take this topic and maybe make a broader point about the world that we live in today now y'all know that I'm kind of the film guy on the podcast and uh, there's uh, there, you've heard of the Marvel Cinematic Universe oh my god when you said I'm the film guy in the podcast I was dreading is Will going to bring up like the Marvel Scorsese thing again? Well, not Scorsese, but but I am going to bring up Marvel for one last time. It's not going to be the last time. You can't make that promise. When The Flash 2 comes out, because we're I, going to see it. I just don't want to be one this of those. This is our cross to yeah. bear. <laughs> Excuse me, DC. That's DC. You fucking idiot. Like, it shows how much you know about art and culture. I'm bringing this up because... Uh, there was an interesting article in Variety this past week called Crisis at Marvel, and it begins, This past September, a group of Marvel creatives, including studio chief Kevin Feige, assembled in Palm Springs for the studio's annual retreat. Most years, the vibe would have been confident, even cocky, given how the premier superhero brand owned by Disney since 2009 has remade the entertainment business in its image. But this occasion was angst-ridden. Everyone at Marvel was reeling from a series of disappointments on screen, a legal scandal involving one of its biggest stars, and questions about the viability of the studio's ambitious strategy to extend the brand beyond movies into streaming. So the article goes on and on and on, full of hair-raising details from movies in the past few years that have underperformed, uh, one of the actors, Jonathan Majors, being embroiled in a uh, domestic 
assault trial Which right one? now. Wait, who, who was Jonathan Majors? Who did he play? He was um, uh, Kang the Conqueror. I'm not sure. Wh- That's wh- definitely why, why a character you, I know all about. Why, why would you ask? You right. don't know. You don't see these movies. <laughs> all you need to know is that one of the actors is is in big trouble uh-huh. right now. You know, bleeding money on these streaming shows one after another that cost $25 million an episode and are just big money pits. This movie that's coming out in a few weeks, The Marvels, which is tracking to open even lower than The Flash. Here's another here's another paragraph in here. As public criticism mounts, Feige, I don't actually know if that's how his name's pronounced, but I like to think it is. Feige is pulling the plug on scripts and projects that aren't working. Case in point, the Blade reboot. With Mahershala (laughs) Ali signed on for the eponymous role of a vampire, things looked promising for a 2023 release date. But the project has gone through at least five writers, two directors, and one shutdown six weeks before production. One person familiar with the script, Permutations, says the story at one point morphed into a narrative led by women and filled with life lessons. Blade was relegated to the fourth lead, a bizarre idea considering that the studio had two-time Oscar winner Ali on board. Now, reading this, 2019 was a high watermark year for the Disney company. Something like five or six of their releases, maybe more, all made over a billion dollars. And that is not the case this year. Uh, their highest grossing release made 800 million worldwide. And many of them, many of them have lost money from Indiana Jones to, well, this upcoming Marvel thing. Man, to... I forgot about Indiana Jones. You know, I haven't seen that. Well, Join the club because a lot of people have. You, di- you didn't see it. No, I saw it. I, I, <laughs> right, I, I, right. Did, I didn't care for it. <laughs> and circa 2019, when the last uh, Avengers movie came out, Avengers Endgame, and made $11 billion worldwide, <laughs> there, was, there was a kind of feeling of this is full spectrum dominance. This is undefeatable. Th- it's, it's America after the first Gulf War. It's basically. like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is no. And, and then you read this article and it's like, it bleeds, it can die. Now, not to make too heavy-handed a comparison, but um, I'm sure you saw the New York Times polls about Biden this week. Oh, yeah. He's uh, trailing Trump uh, by considerable margins in, like, Michigan, Georgia, You know, just, just the I states think. they need to win, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm reading this article in Axios by Alex Thompson, a sort of breakdown of some of the polls. 71% said that Biden was too old, including 54% of his supporters. Only 39% of those voters felt the same about Trump. Trump and Biden effectively tied among voters under 30, a large shift from 2020. I mean, that's I mean, that's the ball game right there, honestly. This all happening at a time when, you know, 100,000 people were marching in the streets this last weekend. In in Toronto, that is. Well, in Toronto and in, in DC as well. Right, right. Uh, s- similar numbers doing these chants, Biden, Biden, you can't hide. We charge you with genocide. Well, I thought Biden had a pretty good chance of losing to Trump, you know, before the events of the past month or so. So, I mean, those numbers with under 30s is like, again, that's the ballgame if those numbers hold on election day, which actually we're recording. It is exactly 365 days until the next election. And this isn't a good news story. It's just um, I, I look at culture. I look at politics and you're seeing these like edifices that seemed insurmountable and the ground is is shifting. I think it's similar to that realization after 2016 when Hillary Clinton lost, where it's like, oh, wait a minute, maybe these people don't know what they're doing. There are no shortage of pundits on Twitter, you know, saying something like, oh, you don't understand. Like th- this Israel strategy right now is how it has to be. You know, mm-hmm. like he's like Biden's playing 24 dimensional chess. He's going to win back Michigan. Don't you worry. Right. And yeah. and actually, like maybe if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it, it's a duck. <laughs> 
I guess the good news is just that reality is as it seems. Uh, <laughs> despite like the constant gaslighting from our media and political elites, reality <laughs> is as it seems. Uh, the center cannot hold. This is not tenable, whatever this is. Well, some nice free associating from Will there rem- reminds me of a little show we just watched called The Dinosaur Hour. <laughs> Folks, I gotta say, I wasn't crazy about watching this thing that Will uh, suggested, which is uh, the new John Cleese show on Britain's GB News. I figured, okay, you know, what? The, how funny can this possibly be? How much can there possibly be to talk about? This is going to be, uh, you know, this show's build is like John Cleese. Uh, he's doing his free speech warrior shit. He's taking on wokeness. And what we found is so much better. Who is it? We're here for the show. Welcome to the Dinosaur Hour. I was uh, married to a therapist. And you survived? I thought we were getting Hugh Laurie. Second best. You interviewed Saddam Hussein. What's that like? I was terrified. I'm playing strip poker with these three. No, thank you. (laughs) My CDs need to be put in alphabetical order. Uh, Are you going to be problematic again? (laughs) The Dinosaur Hour. Sunday, the 29th of October at nine on GB News. Well, uh, let me let me just tell you a little bit about how the show has been pitched in the media. So I have an I have an article here in The Independent, the British newspaper, uh, the title of which is John Cleese is struggling to persuade guests to discuss, quote, woke issues, unquote, on GB News show. The article says, in an interview with Michelle Dubery on GB News, Cleese said, I want to discuss woke issues in the Dinosaur Hour, and we couldn't get people on. One woman said it's wrong even to discuss it. In other words, they just want us to accept all their ideas, and they're not prepared to discuss them. Man, if you'd have showed me that, I would have been like, oh, I don't know about this, man. I mean... This is one instance when I wish GB News would like fulfill its mandate of showing all sides of the story, because I'd like to know exactly how Cleese and his people like pitched this. Did he just go up to activists and say, we want you to talk about woke. (laughs) What is woke? I mean, you can imagine like any like activist with half a brain saying, well, I don't. I'm not crazy about that framing. <laughs> and yeah, I, I wanted to talk about this show and the show ended up being a little different than I thought it would be. But because this particular kind of reactionary encoded free speech shtick is something that's getting my goat at this particular moment. You know, at this moment when like half my Twitter feed is just images of dead Palestinians, and then you keep hearing like all these old people talking about, well, you know, the real problem with the world today is you can't, you can't discuss the issue. You can't have open forums of debate because people just don't, don't want to hear it. People just don't want to have their views challenged. And I'm so tired of hearing that over and over again from the John Cleeses of the world, because let's say we do have the open debate. What do you want to debate? What view do you want to hear challenged? What specific issues do you want to ride for within that forum that you've created an edifice for? And they never get around to saying what that is. And mind you, I said reactionary encoded. It's particularly aging liberals or, yes. fo- or former liberals who are who are saying this kind of thing. You know, the, like the Bill Mars of the world. Right. Before, right? before it was wokeness. Right. It was just it was uh, political correctness. Was what, right. And Bill Maher like, was, I believe, the name of his first show. Right. Was politically incorrect. Yeah, really right wing people, people who identify, you know, are out and proud right wingers aren't really bothering with this. Like, they'll just tell you what they believe. 
But older liberals who are sort of, you know, becoming more conservative as they get older, you know, feeling the ground shifting from under them and finding it uncomfortable, don't kind of want to cop to what the discomfort is. So they want to talk about the discourse. They want to talk about the forum. They want to talk about the need for free expression and open debate. They're talking about the conditions of discourse rather than actually participating in discourse. And like, yeah, I, I will say that at a moment when, yeah, half the Twitter feed is just like these horrible videos from the Middle East, I'm less sympathetic for this thing than Ever. There are actual things to be talking about. Um, and so we're talking about the dinosaur hour on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, but so everything Will just described is not what the dinosaur hour is <laughs> at, at least, all. At least not yet. No, We've no, We've no. seen the first two episodes. Yeah, so I wasn't sure when Will first put it on. Like, I thought, you know, maybe Cleese has been doing this for a year or something. No, no, no. There's only two episodes, and we watched both of them. And we were so flabbergasted at what we saw. This show is so uncannily strange in its format and its delivery. I mean, I would honestly recommend, I mean, don't watch a whole episode, but the second episode we watched, which is basically just John Cleese talking to Stephen Fry about like everything and nothing for like a full hour. We'll we'll drop a few minutes of it in so you can hear just how aimless it is. This is not like a sort of right-wing free speech warrior type of show. This is a rich liberals down at the pub talking about nothing in particular kind of show. And I actually had a lot more fun watching it than I expected. We should talk about like the aesthetic and the look of it because I think that added to how strange it is. The whole thing is set up in something that's sort of somewhere between like a pub and I don't know, like a dining hall and a castle. Uh, like I believe it is suits of armor officially and stuff. a castle because you'll recall that episode two begins with... Right, there's that like establishing shot of the castle. There's a little sketch where Cleese reprises one of his famous roles, the French taunter from Monty Python <laughs> and the Holy Grail. And this is a bit like if you went up to an Olympian and the Olympian is 85 years old and you said, hey, can you do that pole vault from 60 years ago? They're not going to be able to do it anymore. So yeah, you get to see John Cleese do the shtick, you know, just an old, old man doing stuff that was funny 50 years ago. You know, it's interesting. I hadn't even really made the connection that Castle Sketch was like supposed to be an establishing shot of like the room where the show takes place. This show has the kind of presentation of something that's been on for a really long time where you're supposed to know how everything works and who the characters are. There are these weird B segments breaking up each part of the show where it's like the producer and the mater D. Okay, so wait, like the the aesthetic is that it's in this like dining hall at a castle and Cleese enters and he's like walking around and there are all these tables where various people from like British society, there are some like businessmen with like derby hats. Yeah, some nuns. Some nuns. Ministry of Silly Walks, guys. Some various people, uh, all white, by the way. I'm just going to throw that out there. I I don't think we saw a single non-white person on this show. Cleese will like do, he'll talk to the camera and he'll go between tables. Then he'll like sit at a table and talk to a guest who's at that table. And then when he's talking to that guest, everyone else at every other table is just like, pretending to be having a conversation with who's so weird oh and there are cats everywhere i guess he just likes cats i guess so and that speaks to one of the things that the show is like gb news this you know horrific right-wing tv channel that they have like obviously their idea was well we need to like normalize whatever it is we do here so like 
in between like the Enoch Powell power hour, we're going to have <laughs> we're going to have one show where like one liberally encoded celebrity can do whatever he wants, you know, a, a national treasure, a man whose uh, very name is synonymous with Britain and that everyone on the spectrum can agree on. And it's John Cleese from Faulty Towers. And they basically went to him and said, uh, John, you can do whatever you want. Literally, you can do anything you want. Blank check. And Cleese, a man who's been in television for like 60 years, I don't know, a really long time, he should know better. But what he clearly said was, yes, I'm going to do a show where everything that has got my goat about TV for the last 60 years, we're going to address it. We're going to have, you know, most shows, it's just like sound bites. It's just like superficial conversations. Well, we're going to have real conversations on my show. Long aimless, real <laughs> conversations of the kind that you would just have in real life. TV shows aren't tackling the real issues. The issues I care about, like the goddamn British press, goddamn invasive British media, and we're going to address that. We're going to address all the things that I personally care about as a man who's been famous in Britain for 60 years. And the first episode begins with him like addressing the TV and saying something like he introduces the concept of the show as the dinosaur hour, a place for people who are out of touch and proud of it, you know? <laughs> so then that prepares you to think, oh, this is going to be like the anti-woke show. This is going to be sticking it to the blue haired identity politics people on, on campus. But no, it's just like stuff that John Cleese is interested in. It really is uncannily strange. And I can't stress that enough. I mean, my impression, my general impression of GB News is even though it is basically a right wing network, it does have this branding of just, you know, yeah, this is for people who are opinionated and they don't have you know, a political home in the in the MSM and stuff. And I'm pretty sure like almost all their programs, like a typical GB News program is always just like a single loud personality and a show built around them. I saw Cleese was on Twitter this week saying how dismayed he was that his employer GB News just gave a show to Boris Johnson. Can <laughs> right. you believe it that there's gambling in this establishment? Right, right. My impression of GB News is that it hasn't really succeeded very well. Like I think it's kind of struggling. Um, well, I think the existence of this show kind of speaks to that well, I mean, it's just there, like let's give let's give john cleese whatever he wants there, and, there was a quote in the new statesman about a year ago from some people who used to work at gb news who said that at times they were so desperate for guests they'd resorted to quote booking their own parents this doesn't really fit in anywhere but i just think it's funny did you know that uh, gb news also produces a comedy show called ministry of offense oh man <laughs> so that's that's what we're dealing with here i liked this quote in the financial times describing it uh, gb news is so tedious so lacking in new nuance is actually making me more sympathetic to the cause of those they deem woke. So that's, you know, a right wing commentator is like, God damn it. Like, I would rather listen to like campus activists talk than this bullshit. Like, I think it's not even resonating among the people it's supposed to resonate under. Uh, but yeah, I was amused uh, going on its Wikipedia page that there's this YouGov poll cited of, you know, different news brands in the UK and, you know, like the, the percentage of people who trust them. John Cleese began the first episode we watched by showing a poll of like how Britain is last in the EU for most of the past decade or something in terms of, uh, you know, trust for the news media. And it must be said rightly so. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I was surprised. I mean, John Cleese is just an old centrist. So there are a, a number of moments in the show where you're like, well, yeah, you know, I sort of agree with yeah, that. Totally. Like, the poll found uh, the YouGov poll found that uh, only 12 percent of respondents consider GB News uh, a trusted news 
news, Brent. It's 44% for the BBC, which is less than half, but it's a lot bigger than 12. So yeah, we've only watched two episodes, which is a shame because the- we, we actually wanted to watch a third episode and we were pretty disappointed when there wasn't one. The opening credits show like a montage of, you know, scenes from the episodes to come. And there's a lot of really tantalizing content. Caitlyn Jenner. Rob Schneider's coming Ro- up. Rob Schneider, which I mean, for God's sake, jo- John Cleese, <laughs> you were a member of the Beatles of comedy. Yeah, like- you, don't need to, you don't need to debase yourself by talking to the guy who played Deuce Bigelow, male gigolo. Like acts like the legend you should be. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the first episode, and mind you, this is the first episode. This is Cleese on GB News saying, this is what my show stands for. It's unethical print media journalism, which is certainly a, a valid topic, but I'm kind of surprised it wasn't, you know, episode three. It's crazy that they started with this. I mean, the first episode was basically just an anti-Rupert Murdoch thing where there was, you know, a media studies professor. I mean, the fucking format of this show is so funny. The first thing is, the first segment is he got, he's got a media studies professor who's explaining why people don't trust the media. And the basic explanation is, well, in Britain, TV broadcasting is regulated by Ofcom. Uh, so there's certain standards of objective truth and yada, 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 they have to cleave to. And doesn't apply to the press and think about the hacking scandal, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then Cleese gets up after 15 minutes of this. And he goes, you know, now I'm going to talk to somebody who's been affected by the by this issue. And then he wanders over like five feet in the bar. And there's a woman who ba- who explains that uh, the da- a Daily Mail reporter posed as, she's a beautician, and a Daily Mail reporter posed as a client and, uh, I don't know, recorded her, you know, asked a bunch of weird questions and then ran an article. And like, had a hidden camera. Had a hidden camera, like ruined her business or something uh, by accusing her of, you know, uh, maiming people and being like an unlicensed, you know, beautician or something. Uh, and again, this is like, it's 10 or 15 minutes and she's just saying, you know, uh, and they ruined my life and blah, blah, blah. Ruined my mental health. That's and right. I, I considered suicide, et cetera, et cetera. And she then says that she got a lawyer to do some pro bono work for her. She sued the Daily Mail. Yeah, and she won also. And, and she won. Which is, which is really funny because the thesis off the top is that the, the print media uh, isn't really regulated at all. They're not accountable They're to They're not accountable. And it's like, well, in her case, she actually like got a retraction printed. She got some money. Uh, but the retraction was very small. Like, she was she was slandered in a two-page spread. Well, the thing is, that's true. I mean, a lot of newspapers, when they run retractions, it's like if you run a big story that's like not true, and then you run a retraction on page, you know, whether it's two or seven, most people are not going to see the retraction. But the, the real problem with this segment is that there's just no details about what the story actually is well, at all. Well, yes. And the thing is, like, you tell me that a Daily Mail journalist is unethical and prints lies. Yeah, water is wet. Yeah, yeah. I'm entirely willing to believe that but a more professional show would be yeah Cleese talks to her and then it cuts to like a documentary segment about it where you get to understand well what were the allegations that the Daily uh-huh. Mail was making was she licensed uh-huh. did she maim people what 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 is the kernel of truth or what was the allegation that the Daily Mail ran with because you can only listen to this and say, okay, but what are they not telling us? What was the smoke where somebody thought there was fire here? And it would it would strengthen the case. Right. It's like we don't we don't know. Like she could ease 
obviously be the victim, like the totally uncomplicated victim that the it, show is representing. Explain to me why it was a lie. It doesn't, it doesn't tell you anything, and it doesn't even really rhyme with the first segment because the whole point of the first segment is that there's no regulation of the press. There's no recourse for people who get defamed, and she's like, oh, they defamed me, and I sued them, and I won. <laughs> I won a libel case against them. So the thesis of the episode is uh, TV broadcasters, they do have a regulatory body in the UK that people can make complaints to, and uh, that regulatory body sends out fines and, you know, dishes out punishments and discipline and that sort of thing. And uh, uh, though it has been weakened, for example, with the existence of GB News, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, there is a separation of church and state in the media between editorial and reportage, uh, but that no similar body exists in print media and one has to be established, a similar regulatory body. Lowest degree of trust in printed media in Europe, United Kingdom, 2012, please. Ah, we've gone up one. We've gone above Greece. Oh, that's terrific. Fleet Street's heart must be swelling with pride. 2013. Oh, we're down again. 2014. 2015. 2016. Oh, come on. 2017. 2018. Look, we're above. We're above North Macedonia. It's a familiar argument, isn't it? That there needs to be some some regulatory body that can be a sort of like ministry of facts. M- and mind you, I'm I'm sympathetic to at least 40% of what he's saying on this episode. An argument can be made about certain regulations of media enterprises of a certain scale in the way that a network like the CBC here has like an ombudsperson who actually is empowered to, you know, uh, receive complaints and uphold them in certain cases or like how, you know, newspapers in some cases now have a public editor, although that's something they introduce themselves. So I'm not entirely unsympathetic to the idea of some kind of regulation. Although honestly, the best regulation, like if you really want to stop Rupert Murdoch, it's not to regulate the facts, it's to regulate the monopolies. Like there's just, I mean, just fucking break up the, why does Rupert Murdoch get to own like a massive percentage of like Australian and British news? Why is so much of the media run for profit? There's so many other issues, so many other ways to come at it. And I think, you know, Will and I went into this expecting a sort of, yeah, you know, please doing his anti-woke tirades or whatever. And instead, you know, it's just this is just the British equivalent of like US liberals who think that if you just removed Fox News from the equation, like American democracy would be fixed. And, you know, it's definitely uh, more complicated than that. But I mean, the real highlight for me was the second episode. So please, man, this, this bowled us over because the first episode, you know, sets up this weird format, which, yeah, by the way, just to just to go back to that for a sec. What's so funny about the whole like sitting in this pub that's also a castle <laughs> format is that like Cleese will go over and talk to this woman who's, you know, allegedly been defamed by the Daily Mail. And then he'll go over like he'll go three feet back to the other table where he's talking to the other guy. And then they'll just resume a conversation as if she's not sitting right over okay, there. Listen, I'll, <laughs> I, right now, I will make the show 15 percent better. You call it the dinosaur pub and you say set it at a pub make it simple <laughs> yeah no castle no i i know that he's like drawing on some like monty python aesthetics what was the point of the castle except to do the one sketch that 
that we that we saw. Well, he's like, well, I'm John Cleese. I'm silly. I'm Monty Python. Let's have some Monty Python shit in here. And to that, I say, fuck that. Just have <laughs> it be a pub. The pub makes conceptual sense. You go from table to table at the. It is kind of a pub. I mean, the, the conceit doesn't really work. It's a pub in a castle with a bunch of cats wandering yeah, around. Yeah, but there's clearly like members of the public that are supposed to be there because there's all these sort of strangers who are just sitting there. I say streamline the aesthetic and you make this show 15% better <laughs> and, so, and 15% more legible. Well, I think Cleese is learning from his mistakes because in the second episode, they basically completely dispense with the format of the first one. Right, because the first one, it's like there are distinct, <laughs> it's all one overarching theme. But, but there's there like are, segments, there segments and there's different people that he yeah. talks to. And the second one is basically just a full hour of uh, Stephen Fry and John Cleese having this like, freeform conversation and it's incredible there's no overarching theme there are certain like themes that emerge but it really is they just sat down and started talking and and again somebody who's been working in television for 60 years should know better than to have that you know if you're you're out at a pub with your friend and you're having a great conversation and you're thinking god somebody's got to record this like the two of us like we could have a great podcast (laughs) and there has to be part of you that says okay but this conversation right here is not a podcast Uh this is a a conversation we, we like we've said this before talking about the enterprise of podcasting how a lot of podcasts that don't work The problem is just that there is a kind of like cafe atmosphere where people think that, oh, a podcast is just you have two mics on, you have a conversation. And that's absolutely not how you make a successful podcast that's interesting to listen to. Well, because most conversations are only interesting to the two people there. And we see in this conversation with Cleese and Fry, it's just, well, it's like what a normal conversation is. It just goes stream of consciousness from one thing and somebody will say something that like somebody else picks up on. And and then gradually the terrain of the conversation shifts and maybe it sort of gestures back at the previous thing or it moves on to something else. But like in most conversations, themes are introduced that are not concluded or followed up on. Right. It just sort of drifts right. and drifts. And there's no like backbone of like most podcasts that are kind of in this format, you know, WTF with Mark Marin or something like that. <laughs> like it has the spine of we're talking about this person and their whole career. We're basically beginning at birth and we're going to their great successes and we're leading to now. And that gives you a spine on which you can have all sorts of digressions. How much more interesting would this have been if John Cleese had just interviewed Stephen Fry about his career? Well, it's a good question because it probably wouldn't have been that interesting. I don't know. I think there. I think it would have been more interesting. At least it would have been more coherent. Well, it would have been more coherent for sure. Like halfway through the conversation, I kept thinking like, why not just ask John Cleese about the funny hotel owner he met who inspired Basil Fawlty? Like, we know he's got a story. At this point, let's just hear some stories. Let's hear some stories that work. <laughs> it's amazing what money will do. Is, is, I mean, when you think that London was the number one center for the laundering of Russian dirty money. Yeah. I mean, it didn't make me feel proud. No, they called it Boristan at the time. <laughs> I didn't know yeah. We're none of us uh, entirely wide-eyed and naive about the world. We know that the world, and it has always been the case that um, money talks and, and that everybody has a price to some extent. Do you know what Napoleon said? No, go on. He said the surprising thing is not that every man has his price. But how low it is. Yes. Yes, I would have said the same. how low it is. I think that's hilarious. I've always thought the greatest power a human being can have in negotiations, whether it's as an actor, like in a film, as minor as that, or in a huge boardroom way, the greatest power you can have is the power to walk away. Yeah. Just to be able to say, oh, no, this is not for me, and go. But uh, I know some people in business who will say that the first thing you sense when you sit around 
a table, say about the sale of a company or the, yeah. you know, the it going public, you know, the share offering, is you instantly know the greedy ones, and they're the ones you want to have nothing to do with, who are in it to make money, uh, and. Uh. It, you know, I am, in that sense, very naive. In the, um, in the early, uh, early 90s, late 80s, when I was aware that the internet was going to happen, and I became very excited by it. And through the 90s, I became very excited by it. And we had lots of meetings with people who had ideas, and the really good ones wanted to make something extraordinary. Yeah. You know? Uh, what is, incidentally, what is the last, like, big thing Stephen Fry did? Oh, Christ. I mean, the last um, thing I remember seeing, which doesn't, you know, it doesn't really count because it's not like a program that he produced, but, like, when he and Christopher Hitchens debated Anne Whittacombe and that Catholic bishop about, you know, is the Catholic Church a force for good in the world? It's a good question because I feel like when we were in, like, undergrad university and you would go to chapters or some bookstore, there'd always be some, you know, in the atheist section next to Penn Jillette and Christopher Hitchens, you'd always see, like, Stephen Fry on the cover looking sort of saucy. Are you there, God? It's me, Stephen. <laughs> as long as I've been conscious of him, he has just been a sort of free-floating, like, guy who talks about atheism rather than a comedian or actor. Yeah, maybe that's true, or maybe we're being unfair to Stephen Fry. I'm maybe not he's sure. in something. I could look up his I, IMDb right I, now. I don't know. I mean, suffice it to say, I mean, Stephen Fry, like Cleese, has done stuff that's good. But, you know, one of the things that comes through in this conversation, which, you know, we said it's a conversation between Cleese and Stephen Fry, I would say about 80% of it is just Stephen Fry talking. One of the things that comes through is that Stephen Fry really fancies himself an intellectual. And it is actually kind of funny because uh, some of the things Cleese says, some of his interventions are really thick and you can actually tell Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry was running me back a little bit by getting kind of pissed off. Uh, but Well, because there's a whole segment where Fry is basically explaining the internet to John Cleese. <laughs> and it's like, for, God, for God's sake, can't we move past this? <laughs> Okay, so I tried to keep track uh, with I tried to make notes on just the trajectory of the conversation and Will and I are going to do our best to reconstruct it for you. It starts off with cricket. Everything in the show like whether it's a conversation or a segment or one of these like B segments where it's the Mater D and the show producer. Oh, that's right. Between like between segments they just talk the show. Like it's like those things. It's like at the end of the Magic School Bus where they like they do the debrief. Except they don't even really talk about the show. It just cuts to the producer and the mater d like like sports commentators just talking about just their day you know they, they talk about what's it like to work with john cleese and it's like oh just i used to watch monty python you know it's so weird because these two are not established as characters like it's something that would work if a show had been on for like 10 or 15 years it's like how it, with like howard stern or something you had all these like side characters and you didn't need to reintroduce them because you know you could reasonably assume that anyone watching the show would sort of know like you know it's like how will and i don't have to explain who al gore is anymore you know you guys all know al gore because you've Although, listened to this pr show pretty soon it might be <laughs> if this show goes on longer we might have to start doing that yeah 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 um so, so the, the so conversation yeah. starts with cricket and then you know on and on and, and that's it's the third religion in india practically and, and Fry starts talking about how, like, Fry, it kind of sounds like Fry is like an activist, but for cricket. Then he, for some reason, segues into how, like, the Saudis, with their awful human rights record, are sort of buying up sports. And, you know, soon Lionel Messi is going to be playing for some, some Saudi team. Right. And at this moment, I thought, oh, okay, this is what it was building to. This is what the conversation right. is going to be about. We're going to talk about Saudi Arabia. Well, no, no, no. Because then quickly we move on. Somehow Stephen Fry says, you know, the most terrifying 
word of the last, you know, 50 years is disruption. Now, I heard that and I thought, okay, okay, he's winning me over Uh again. I I agree with that. And you think, all right, that's interesting. And they sort of have a little, they riff on that for a bit about how like, uh, oh, you know, people just want to throw the old out and introduce the new without ever asking, you know, whether that's a good idea or not. This this is what a conversation is. It's just a bunch of received wisdom, like repeated at each other. That somehow becomes a conversation about how there's like through the dis- the disruption racket, these Silicon Valley guys have become rich. Not rich like you and I, like extremely rich. There's there's never enough. They want to be very, very rich without asking whether there's any point to all of it. Then uh, Stephen Fry brings up Animal Farm. I can't really remember oh why that comes in, but it's like, okay. The Silicon Valley disruptors who come in here with their like blue jeans <laughs> and their sneakers. Uh... <laughs> That's right. Oh, I know what it is because at the end, he's, he's saying the Silicon Valley disruptors, you know, like the pigs at the end of Animal Farm, they've traded their sneakers and blue jeans for suits. And it's like, I don't know, guys like Cleese and Fry, like they make fun of millennials and Gen Z people for not reading enough. And it's like, all right, you guys only ever seem to have read like Animal Farm and like, you know, maybe 10 pages of 1984. Make fun of millennials who don't read all you want. But I mean, Harry Potter is like 700 pages, okay? (laughs) People who live in glass houses, etc. But then somehow this thing about being rich... And it never being enough for for these Silicon Valley guys. Fry then starts talking about how money is like an addiction. And he talks about how society is just governed by money. And, you know, I was part of the first generation that, you know, we were the targets of TV advertising. And I used to watch TV and they would talk about different sweets and sugar o's they just start talking about cereals they had he just, he just starts listing which again off. which again is what a conversation what a real yeah. conversation is you're just like hey you remember that thing you remember that thing oh yeah 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 i remember that he thing starts, too he starts listing off for like five minutes just different cereals and sweets these are the conversations that the woke multicultural <laughs> networks don't want you to hear conversations about cereals from the 1960s <laughs> just two old men 80 and 70 sitting here it's like all all that's missing are like a troop of young men that they can send to the Battle of the Somme. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just while, while talking about their like bougie concerns in dinner jackets. But yeah, so he somehow gets from this to talking about, well, addiction, you know, uh, addiction, that's bad. You know, a lot of people watching uh, will know what, what addiction is, but also some won't because addiction affects some people. It doesn't affect others. Anyway, you know what I hate are those self-help books that talk about goal orientation. So then there's a whole riff about how goal orientation doesn't make sense because find me a human being who reaches a goal and is ever satisfied. And then, you know, Cleese will chime in and it'll be like, oh, yes, well, of course, there's certain Nobel laureates, dot, 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 just trailing off. Fry goes on to the next thing. Somehow next he's talking about AI. Somehow that goes into like how he thinks the universal basic income is a good idea. Somehow then it goes back to the addiction stuff and he's talking about how he doesn't like smoking. Smokers, but then, you know, he also hates uh, how in America, especially non-smokers persecute people who smoke. It's like jazz, you know? Uh, somehow from here we get to social media and could it ever be useful? Cleese has a whole thing about like why are people allowed to post anonymously? 
and, and then, this this is why this show exists right here <laughs> is to make that complaint right and then fry you know rightly sort of points out well you know some people post anonymously because like some people actually will be persecuted for their opinions and cleese reacts like this is the first time anyone has ever exposed him <laughs> to this fact so then we get into this whole thing about how you know the thing about inventions is that they're a land of contrast <laughs> Stephen fry is like you know, you think about the Gutenberg uh, printing press and, you know, you can use that to print John Keats. You can also use it to print Mein Kampf. And here we go. That, John that's so Keats. true. Mein Kampf. I was just thinking about all the things you can do with cars. <laughs> it's like it's like you can you could run over somebody, but you can also transport life-saving medicine. Yeah, well, and, and yeah, I'll complicate even further. What if the person you run over, like what if it's a kid, uh, you run over the kid, that's bad. Except then what if the kid is baby Hitler? Oh my God. I mean, a lot to think about. Get out of our silos and have conversations like that and see everything from every angle. We're, we're Unintended just... consequences. Then the next conversation, or, or actually I think it's little further back in the conversation when they're talking about ai fry is taught he's like free jazzing about like different inventions and he talks about how bicycles is our version of a cheetah because when you think about it like, i'm not making it up that's the that's the formulation it's like when you think about it ai is just like a cheetah of computers or maybe a bicycle of computers i'm not really sure he is sort of saying this in the service of pointing out that, you know, computers will never develop, you know, like AI is not like really sentience as we understand it. It's just like doing certain kinds of, you know, mechanical processes or computer processing faster or something, which I don't think, you know, Cleese doesn't quite seem to grasp that. But uh, but yeah. but the look on his face is just like, whoa. Yeah. And like literally, you know, we were saying that thing about cars and no, literally then they start talking about like horseless carriages and shit. Well, you know, a lot of people back in the day thought horseless carriages wouldn't work but then that's right that's what the conversation now and it's like you know therefore ai (laughs) like who's to say (laughs) who's to say one thing about uh, these conversations is it is actually really difficult. I mean, despite GB News sort of branding as a place where people are really opinionated, there are kind of opinions being expressed in this conversation. But honestly, it's not really clear like where either of them come down a lot of this stuff. Stephen Fry at one point is talking about the Silicon Valley guys and how they're into long termism. And he's sort of doing like, you know, the stock and correct critique of like Silicon Valley tech utopianism and posthumanism and stuff. And then at one point he starts talking about Ayn Rand and objectivism and it's not really clear where he comes down on it. Like it kind of seemed like he was praising it. There's certain moments where they'll just like one of them will bring someone up and then the other person will just respond like with a fact about that thing that is there for no other reason except to brandish like the one thing they know about it. So like Cleese brings up, uh, oh, I was reading an article many years ago by A.J. Eyre and then Fry will chime in. Oh, yes, it's the logical positivist. Yes, it's like, okay, Name a second fact about AJ Air. <laughs> Read another book. You know, like, <laughs> I don't know, man. Anyway, I did it a number of points. Like my withering cynicism was kind of melted away well, a bit. So a few th- points. This episode was kind of charming. It's not very good. It's no, not very entertaining. It, it's, but it's it's, it's a, entertaining ironically. It's a bad show, and I don't really like it. But so far, and I know that Cleese <laughs> is capable of making things I don't like. Uh, but so far, like it's absolutely harmless uh-huh. and. At its worst, it's just kind of like a napped. I think we should convert our podcast into just like we should do an episode a week that's just a recap of the latest oh, dinosaur. Please, hour. I want, I, I want more. <laughs> yeah. I want more. I mean, I genuinely, it's very rare that Will and I will watch something like this for the show and then, like, you know, we just want another hit of it, like, right away. 
Like this was just like, oh man, give me another cup of coffee. I'm addicted already. You know, like the Silicon Valley guys who have too much money, you know, no amount of this show is ever going to be enough for me. I'm looking forward to many dinosaur hours that lie ahead of us. Season two, season three, as long as Cleese can, you know, keep himself afloat. I kind of don't know if this show's really going to be like viable. Like how long is this going to stay on the air? The format completely changed from the set, like first episode to the second well, pretty one. Pretty soon Cleese is going to run out of things he's in interested in. <laughs> One thing I found kind of bone chilling about it was I always thought the secret to aging gracefully as a public figure is to stay engaged. Like you don't get to be the man of the moment forever. You don't get to be Bob Dylan in 1968 for your whole life. But if you stay engaged, if you stay connected with the world, you can maybe be the Bob Dylan who makes time out of mind. And that's a that's a great thing. It's a pretty good Bob Dylan to be. Absolutely. <laughs> and you know, I've always looked at John Cleese and seen, well, sometime around the time the Berlin Wall fell, he, he stopped being funny. And he obviously just went into a little hole somewhere and didn't didn't stay engaged, you know. But now I look at this show and this is the work of a man trying to stay engaged. It's true. He's it, trying, it, he's trying, even though he starts it with being like, well, this is a show for people who are out of touch. Well, the whole conversation with Stephen Fry is him like interested in modern things. Right, right. And, you know, don't add us if in two weeks John Cleese goes off on something, you know, more emblematically GB News. It'll probably happen at some point. But yeah, I mean, I, I actually did find this. I mean, it do, the show doesn't work on any level, but... uh. So I found it charming that he's trying. It was kind of oddly charming. He's trying to be engaged, but then also like, this is the best he can do. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, mixed response, I guess. Well, we will definitely check back in on the dinosaur hour. And I, for one, look forward to many dinosaur hours that lie ahead. Now watch this drive. Five pounds from five pounds take. And 